Making it in business isn't about spreadsheets, this or that. It's about guts, tenacity, and above all, street smarts. Join Sarah Shaw as she talks with successful entrepreneurs about all the hard-won lessons they've learned on the mean streets of the business world. If you've ever felt stuck, stifled, or even just scared to get out there and make your mark, you'll learn how even the most successful entrepreneurs overcame failure and found the power to move forward. So forget about learning about business in school, because all you need to make it big is a street smart MBA. And here's your host, Sarah Shaw. Hey there, welcome to How to Get a Street MBA. This is Sarah Shaw, and I'm here today with James Altucher. And James has started and ran more than 20 companies and is currently an investor and an advisor to over 30. But at one point, James lost everything. And that's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to him today, because in a matter of months, he drained his account from $15 million to a paltry $143. <laughs> and he was depressed on the floor, and he kind of realized that today's standard view of success comes with conditions, and the only effective way to be successful is to choose yourself. And he's a successful entrepreneur now, an angel investor, chess master, and a Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Choose Yourself, which is an amazingly fantastic book that I've read. And you can find his best and most controversial advice at the Ultra Report, which provides you with James's personal research in business finance and entrepreneurship. And he's also the host of the James Altucher Show, which is a leading business podcast. And James introduces you to his network of choose yourselfers, successful entrepreneurs, billionaires, best-selling authors, writers, rappers, astronauts, and more, who all forged their own path, found financial freedom, and harnessed the power to create meaningful and fulfilling lives. So James, thanks so much for being with me. Welcome. Sarah, thanks so much for inviting me on the show. Yeah, so there's so much I want to talk to you about. Um, I, I already have things to talk to you about based on <laughs> your description of me, but my memory is so bad I, I forgot <laughs> what uh, I was going to say. Well, you've got people who write really great things about you too, so I'm sure we all appreciate that. Um, so, so let me just kick off and then you can feel free to ask me anything you want. I don't have any secrets. So, sure. um, so kind of one of the things that I've been kind of realizing today. Like, oh, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry, sorry. Yeah. I remember the one thing I wanted to, to say. When you were saying yeah. I was down to, I went from $15 million to $143, I want to mention that that actually is, is, I think, much worse than going into millions of dollars in debt. Uh, yes. like, like, I would much have preferred to go from $15 million to $5 million in debt because then you can like work things out somehow. But when you have like, when you have nothing, there's nothing to work out and nobody cares about you at all. At least when you're in huge debt, um, of course it's a horrible thing. You would rather not be in debt, but at least then somebody cares about you because then they want to work out. Well, how can we get this back? How can we help you? You know, and and so on. Nobody wanted to help me when I had essentially zero. I, I can totally relate to that. I, I, um, lost my first, a company. I had a handbag company from 1997 to 2002, and after like 9/11, was September, and in January of 2002, my investors who'd been working with me for about six months called me and just said, um, "We're done today. <laughs> like that was it. No more money." And I didn't have any way to make payroll that week or anything like that, and because um, we were really kind of running on on a shoestring at that point. And I remember at the end when I closed my business at the end of 2002, I just couldn't swing it and turn it around on my own. And 
I was I remember sitting there one day just thinking, nobody cares about me. <laughs> and well, here did, I am all by myself. <laughs> did did you cry? Oh my God, did I cry? Yeah, but you know, I have to say, I sobbed for about six weeks and had my own little pity party with a bottle of vodka. And um, and my dad came to visit, and I was um, and I had literally just bought a house, and I'd sold this little tiny house that I'd been living in for ten years that you know was like barely any money. You know, my mortgage was less than anybody's rent, and I decided I needed to trade up, and so I just sold that house and closed on a house. I lived in Los Angeles at the time and literally closed my business two weeks after I had closed on this house that was bigger and, you know, had to invest all the money I'd made on the first house into fixing this house up because it was such a piece of junk. And I was living at a friend's at the time while my house was being remodeled and she was away on working on a movie. And uh, my dad came to visit and I was, you know, having my pity party. And he looked at me. I was like, I have nothing. I've even, I even lost my name, the, tra- the rights to my own name, the trademark right. to my own name. Got, was died with that business um, because the corporation owned it and the investors would not let me have back my name because they all hated wow. me so much. And, so how, did you, um, how do you ever get your name back? Like, can, you, can you call this podcast you know, your name show? No. Mm-mm. I don't, I don't own the domain to my name. I don't own the trademark to my name. And I, even though the trademark is free now, I don't really want to live. I'm kind of one of those people who likes to live with a clean conscience, and I would never want to take that trademark back because I'd be worried that these vindictive people would come back and maybe ask me, you know, try to get money out of me. So I don't use it anymore. <laughs> I mean, I have my website, Sarah Shaw Consulting, but I don't have the trademark on Sarah Shaw, which is fine. And so because of what my dad said to me, so here I am sobbing and we're having cocktails, of course, because that's pretty much what I did in, for those six weeks. And, uh, and I'm really not a big drinker, so it's kind of a stretch. And uh, he said to me, he's like, you know what? It doesn't matter if you don't have your own name. He's like, the fact is you are Sarah Shaw, and it doesn't matter whether you can call your company, you know, Joe Schmo in a hole. It doesn't matter. It can always say designed by or made by or created by because that's your God-given name, and it's on your passport and your birth certificate, so nobody can take that away from you. And it was such a powerful moment for me because I realized, you know, there I was so feeling sorry for myself and, like, nobody cared about me, and I'd lost my business, and, you know, I was, like, didn't know what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And, um, and he, in that moment, totally turned everything around for me and really empowered me to kind of go on. Wow, so, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 I have another question. Yeah. So uh, in 2002, you've been in business since 1997. Now, obviously, you had enough profits to uh, buy a new house and so on. But how come you didn't have more? How come after five years or four and a half years, how come your business wasn't a little bigger. There wasn't more upward momentum during those first few years. Because I knew nothing about running a business. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I, I, I get that. I ran it into the ground. Like I didn't know. I had worked in the film business for 12 years doing costumes. So I got out of college, went right to work in the movie business and, you know, was spending other people's money. And, you know, they're like, you have this much money to spend. Okay, great. I can, do, I can stay on a budget, you know, and, but I didn't know anything about running a business or margins or how to price my products, and I just kind of screwed everything up for the first few years, and then uh, when the investors came in to, you know, quote, unquote, save me, um, I was still me, 
and that's I didn't know what to do, you know, even though I had all this money at my disposal. And that's kind of, you know, like I watch Shark Tank and all these other shows because I am interested in them and I feel like I'm a voyeur and I just love watching other people's companies grow because that's what I do now. And I see these people get investments and they still, unless they're getting guidance, right, like Shark Tank at least supposedly they're giving them guidance, but like, you know, angel investors, I don't know what kind of companies you invest in, but, you know, I find like a lot of people that get investment money just are, they're still the same person they were that when they woke up that morning and they still don't know how to manage the money. And so if the person, the investor isn't actually it helping them and guiding them, I think that usually it just ends up in a failure. And that's what yeah, I think, I, I think that's true. I think, yeah. uh, Look, business is hard. Yep. Yeah, it you're is. Trying to, you're I you're trying to, I mean, you're competing, particularly you're kind of in a almost commodity business, so mm-hmm. there's so much competition. This is sort of Peter Thiel's point in his book, uh, Zero to One, that competition mm-hmm. is not necessarily good for business. Mm-hmm. You know, you sort of, you sort, when you're actually running a business, you kind of want no competition so that you could right. charge a little bit more and make money. Right. And, exactly. and hire more people and be successful. Instead, everybody in that competitive industry, a highly competitive industry, ends up going out of business ultimately. Right. And then it's the person who's got somehow has their magic pill and who's, who's the one who's gotten ahead and become the most, the, I guess, the biggest name, you know, and the most um, coveted brand ends up winning. Yeah, like look um, at search engines. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Right. And it's so funny, too, because when I, you know, back when I started my handbag company, you know, there was no Google. And, you know, unlike young entrepreneurs that I talk to today are kind of like, look at me with this, you know, question mark on their face, like, wait, you lived when there wasn't Google? <laughs> you know, like you were doing business without Google. How'd you do that? <laughs> like, it was yeah, a lot it seems, harder. It seems know? a long time ago now when it was only yesterday. Right. I know. It was just Yahoo and, you know, and for us, you know, especially like being in the product okay, I'm gonna, world. I'm going to tell you a story. Can I tell you a story? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, please do. Okay, so this was um, 1994 or 93, I forget what year. And uh, I was going to graduate school for computer science, and, but I didn't, I was a horrible student, and I was just playing online chess all day and night, like literally all night. And so at midnight, one time, I'm, going, I'm taking a break. I've been playing for 24 straight hours, take a bathroom break, and I run into this guy in the hallway, and I'm like, what are you doing here? At, his name was Fuzzy. And I said, Fuzzy, what are you doing here at 1 in the morning? And he said, oh, I'm working on this proposal to the government to get funding for this project I'm working on, which is I scan, I, my software pulls down random pages on this new thing, the World Wide Web, and then my software reads the pages and tries to put each page in, a, in, you know, catalog each page in a database depending on what the page is about. So if the page is about Henry Kissinger, it'll go in the Henry Kissinger uh, section of the database. And I, I remember thinking to myself as I went back to play games for the next six hours. I remember thinking to myself, this guy is such a loser, there's no way the government's <laughs> going to fund his project. And the name of his computer, the, the computer he was working on, and his office was right next door to mine, was, he was lycos.cs.cmu.edu. And of course, Lycos uh, eventually went public for $2 billion, right. and he made about $300 million on it. 
and, and then Legos went out of business. I mean, it's it's so funny. It's like the 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 ideas that we think are the lamest often end up, you know, being the most successful. I mean, like you know, look at Facebook and all the other social media outlets. I mean, people didn't think that those were going to end up being anything like they are today. Yeah, not not this big. Yeah. <laughs> although, although I'll tell you another story. So in 2007, I wrote an article in the Financial Times saying that Facebook had just raised money at, at a one, $1 billion valuation. Everyone thought this was crazy. So I wrote an article in the Financial Times saying, listen, Facebook is like a mini internet. It's going to be worth over $100 billion. And CNBC had me on the next morning, and they kept playing a, a, a video over and over again of Jeff Bezos laughing, because Jeff Bezos has this kind of odd laugh. And they were just making fun of me in the whole segment of Facebook's worth, going to be worth $100 billion. The day it went public, it was worth $100 billion. So I went back yeah. on CNBC, and they kind of apologized. Yeah, <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's like you, I mean, Seen, it seems like things that I've read about you, and I, you know, I follow your blog, and I listen to a lot of your podcasts, and, um, you know, and that you have this kind of innate intuition to kind of look at things and dissect them in a way that I think you have this gift that not everybody has. And, you know, people have obviously different gifts in life, but um, like I saw this quote once that Brian Koppelman said about you and that he said you're telling you're telling the story on Saturday on Sunday you're talking about how it failed and on Monday you're talking about how to do it a different way and I just love that your mind works that way you know it's like you're constantly looking at you know coming up with the idea trying quickly to execute it and not you know dicking around and waiting 30 years to get the business plan done and then you know and then, and then when it doesn't work, you, you're like refreshed and you can just move on to the next thing. I mean, has that kind of system worked for you a lot in your life? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it's kind of, it's a weird thing. Like I went through this recently. Like I have, um, I have lots of different business situations going on. And one business situation seemed really annoying to me. And I'm like, oh gosh, this is so annoying. And one side of me was like, look, every time you've been in this type of situation before, just trust that if you keep moving forward and making rational decisions, things are going to work out much, much better than you expected. Like what the, the exact thing that seems bad for you here is actually going to turn out to be an incredible opportunity. And, mm-hmm. But then I decided, oh, no, I'm going to panic about this instead. <laughs> and... <laughs> It, and I, it turned out my initial inclination was correct, that there was no reason to panic, that actually it, it's starting to look, look like it's going to turn out for the best. And I find in general, whenever anything like that happens, like you have a really bad situation in business, like, like you had in 2002, for instance, if you just take a step back, and it's almost like trusting the force, that, you know what, I'm just going to trust, and I'm going to keep moving forward, I'm going to keep doing my best, um, it, it, it invariably turns out that good things happen there was a result. I totally agree. I mean, I when I lost my business, I kind of messed around for a couple of years, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And because um, I'd literally had two jobs in my whole life, one working for the movie business and then one, you know, working for myself. And, um, you know, I was like, 
I don't really know how to do anything else. You know, like I only I love making products and I love you know selling them to stores and getting in magazines and going on TV and all that stuff seemed really fun to me. And I finally, when I came around, I took, I came up with a new product and patented this closet organizer for handbags. And when I started selling it, I took everything that I'd learned and all the mistakes that I had made in that other business and you know the margin mistakes and profitability and all that stuff, and I. Um, worked out of my garage, you know, in my new house. <laughs> I had this garage that I just used uh, for my office and didn't have a, an office like I had with my handbag company. And in two years, I did half a million in sales out of my garage with one product in 12 colors. And I was like, That's wow, great. this is like, this is so awesome. Like I really knew, you know, what I was doing. And there's still, I mean, there was Google at that point, but there still wasn't, you know, in 2006, there wasn't really any social media or with like, you know, Squarespace or something. <laughs> and, um, you know, and people weren't blogging. And I, so I wasn't kind of caught up in the whole internet thing yet. And, you know, I didn't really know, I didn't know anything about email marketing. I mean, I used, you know, Constant Contact and emailed my stores and stuff like I had been before with my old company. But it's, you know, it's, it's that, um, it, it wasn't really like the, it will, if you build it, it will come, you know, kind of mentality. But it was more for me like, okay, do it today, see if it works tomorrow and keep going the next day or close it and move on. It was, you know, because like with products, you don't know whether someone's going to like the pattern that you pick or the design, you know, the style that you do. And one thing's going to be a success and the other five are going to be a bomb. Um, and you just have to kind of keep going through all of that, right? Because I think, I don't know if it was you who said it or I read it somewhere, but um, it's kind of that theory of like what works yesterday may not work tomorrow. Right. And I've kind of always tried to live that way, like, you know, doing different things like you're diversified in all the different businesses that you're involved in right now. Right. Because one could be doing really well this week and the other one could be bombing. Right. But then you're not in the poorhouse again because you've got all these different things going on in these different levels and and avenues that you can go down. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I don't like to get stressed. So, but and at any given point, something could be stressful. So then you switch to the next thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so because I kind of find like most, and I don't know if you experience this too, but so many entrepreneurs these days don't really know like how much work it takes to launch a business, right? You kind of have to eat, breathe, and sleep it, right? If you're lucky to get any sleep, um, if you're really pushing it, and. Um, but I know that, you know, when you've had your big failures, you've picked yourself up. And, you know, even when things were falling apart and you re rebuilt things in either the same way or, you know, either rebuilt those companies, I don't, I don't know enough about your failures that you've had in your life. But how have you kind of picked yourself up when things have failed for yourself and kept going? I mean, this is, this is interesting because uh, – I wrote an article. Well, so 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 I kind of succeeded and failed several times, like many people do. Um, mm -hmm. You try something, and it either works or it doesn't. Most of the times, it doesn't, and then you have to figure out how to get off the bottom when it really is painful and move on to the next thing. And uh, I had done this so many times, and it was so depressing that I finally took a stop and said, "Okay, well, what works on the way down?" and what's been working for me on the way up. Because it's happened so many times, it was practically statistically significant. And I did it, and it was working, and I wrote about it. And this was, this was like a few years ago. And things were going well. 
and then, but in any life, no matter how successful, no matter how much money, no matter how much happiness, there's always bad things that can happen. Unknown, crazy bad things can happen. So about a year ago, something really bad happened in my life, and I was able to take a step back and say, well, okay, I wrote this article about what I do to bounce back. Let's see. I'm feeling really bad right now. Let's see what happens if I just apply my own advice to myself like I have in the past, but now I have this opportunity that if now that I put it in the public, this idea, I can see if it actually works in, in real time. And I did. And it was amazing how fast I was able to bounce back and kind of, you know, rebuild the aspects of my life that, that had been lost in this catastrophe, or at least, you know, able to move forward. And, uh, you know, and it's really simple, which is almost so simple it's trivial. I hope you don't mind that. No. So so basically, I, I you know, I mean, there's always the kind of nuts and bolts of like how to start a business or how to get over this or how to get over that. Mm-hmm. But for me, it always starts with this very basic kind of foundation of the pyramid, which is to make sure... Uh, and I just, at the, every night I check the box on these four things. Am I doing something for my physical health, to improve my physical health a little bit? And that could mean small things. It could mean anywhere from, am I sleeping eight hours a night? Am I taking a big walk? Am I eating well? Or whatever. And then, so that's one thing, emotional health. Am I trimming the toxic people in my life and spending more time with the good people in my life who I love and who inspire me. And so it doesn't have to be black and white. It's just am I trimming it? Am I trimming that tree like a bonsai tree? Uh, creative or mental health. Am I being creative every day? And then finally, um, spiritual health, which is not necessarily religious, but am I just feeling gratitude about things that are difficult to feel gratitude about? So for instance, I try to find in whatever catastrophe is happening to me, whether it's financial or personal, I try to find the things within that catastrophe that I can be grateful for. And so Mm -hmm. I would just sit there and list, like, my whole life I turned upside down, and what were the aspects of that that I was grateful for, which seemed ridiculous at the time, but I I was able to kind of search through uh, you know, I don't know the right metaphor. Search through the forest and find the diamonds lying around. Do you do you find that um, that that when you're looking kind of at the spiritual and grateful part of that each day, that do you ever find yourself like kind of looking back on? And this is something I've just been talking with my brothers about recently, so it's kind of in the forefront of my mind. But like looking back at sort of how you were raised or things that you hated about your parents or your family or your siblings or relationships when you were young that made you feel like maybe not so great about yourself at the time or you were just resentful that they were teaching you that, you know, but that you look back on it now as an adult and realize that those were actually amazing things that helped you become who you are today and that you can be grateful for those things? I mean, yes and no. I think... I think more likely uh, we remember the horrible things from the past because those are the things that are more likely, you know, to save us from lions in the jungle, you know, because mm-hmm. we sort of evolve. You know, our genes are the same as they were 40,000 years ago when we, when we were running from lions in the jungle. Our genes haven't evolved even though society and culture and everything has evolved around us. So, so we're more likely to remember these things that were 
huge warning signs um, to our, you know, adrenaline system. So, so I think we kind of remember the bad things that happened to us when we were 14 years old. So however you felt about yourself then is often how you feel about yourself now, and you kind of have to deal with that when, when bad things happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then that occurs again throughout life. Like if you fail the business at the age of 30, it becomes such a trauma that you sometimes have to get over that the next time you fail out of business uh, or a relationship or whatever. But uh, I think, you know, I think, more, again, more I don't think about the past so much as I just very simply check the box on those four things. Um, mm-hmm. For what's currently the the happening. Because then I know, then I know if I can check the box on those four things, then I know it's a good, it was a good day. And yeah. uh, a good, having a good day today is the best predictor of having a good day tomorrow. And the reason yeah. I say this, this might sound trivial is that it's a little wishy-washy. It's like what you're really thinking about is, well, I need money right now. But, uh, you know, the way you move closer towards somebody giving you money is by doing these four things every day. Like if you're creative every day and at the same time you're healthy and you have energy and you don't get bothered by anxiety because you're feeling grateful, well, then you're going to be in a much, much better position to get money or to come up with ideas and have the energy to, to make money than someone who doesn't, isn't working on these four things. And if you improve them every day, then the improvement compounds and you become... It's like a superpower by within a short amount of time. Yes. Yeah, and you talk a lot about these in Choose Yourself for Wealth, the guide, the, the Choose yes. Yourself Guide to Wealth. Yeah. Um, I read that about a year or so ago. I really liked it. <laughs> I, have um, a, I, I think I read it about a year or so ago. I'll have to reread it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I pulled it out before I, I – this week I was looking at it again to see if there was anything I specifically wanted to talk to you about in the book, and I was like – I'm going to put this back in my morning reading again because <laughs> um, I, try, I try to spend about a half an hour every morning when I, I get up early and I read some, some book. So for, for a couple months, I read the Choose Yourself Guide to Wealth every morning. And, um, you know, and I did, my, I did the ideas. I got your wife's book too, um, The Idea Machine, and shared it with a thousand people. And I had a few people here, you know, friends of mine in town. We were all reading it together and you know, and doing, you know, did you do your ideas this morning? <laughs> um, and it's actually, it's really amazing. I mean, I see, I mean, I saw a bunch of stuff about how there's people who've got, you know, meetup groups about it. And I can see that that can be so beneficial to, you know, to people who are not self-motivators, you know, or just need to be in a group environment to get some, a task, you know, thinking of it as a task, maybe getting a task like that done um, and getting people to kind of cheer you on with that. Um, yeah. Um, so um, going kind of going back to your what you were saying about your emotional health checkbox right getting trimming the toxic people in your life Um, I loved the article that you wrote I think it was a couple weeks ago on the one piece of career advice that you need to know and that the most important thing you can do is find someone good to spend your life with and find someone you can learn from. And it really touched me a lot. I mean, it was, I think it might actually be my favorite thing that you've ever written. And I... Um, that's that's I saying to... a lot because you've read a lot of my stuff. So I'm yes, really I happy. Have. Yeah. And, and especially the part about a person who inspires you to be a better person. Because I, I think that 
so many people, you know, especially when you're an entrepreneur and you're kind of in that, you know, can be in those panic modes. I got to make money. You know, what can I do? How can I make money today? You know, and I, I find, you know, a lot of my clients are like, how can I make money this week? And I'm like, how about sending an email to your list, <laughs> you know, asking them to buy something and then you can make money. You can't make money if you don't ask for it. And, um, you know, and so many people get afraid to ask for money, right, because it's got so many taboos associated with it, I guess, for a lot of people. And, um, and that's really true. Like, what, like, people feel like they're selling out when they yeah. ask for money, you know, as opposed to like being, you know, somehow when you ask for money, it somehow seems like you're being less honest. And I think that's because a lot of people who do ask for money aren't being honest. So there's a bad, right. so, so asking for money has, a, has legitimately a bad rep uh, or right. rap or whatever. Right. Uh, uh, but the, the, the reality is you can, if you ask for money and you believe in what you're selling, then you should ask for money for it. Like you believe in it, it has value, you work hard. In fact, if you don't ask for money, you're, maybe you don't value what you work hard on. And you should value what you do. So I was talking to Tony Hawk, who is the skateboarder. And, and mm-hmm. you know, he won the world championship for skateboarding like nine years in a row. And then he mm-hmm. started a line of skateboards. He makes video games about skateboarding. And, you know, he sold a billion dollars worth of video games. And he was telling me a lot of people, because the skateboarding subculture is all about not selling out, he was telling me he got a lot of accusations of selling out once he started selling. But he said the important thing to note here is you're only going to be accused of selling out when, if you're selling something. So if you're doing well selling. So, right. And if you're doing well selling, that means people are willing to value the work you did. And, yeah, you're always going to have people who complain, but, you know, it's not going to outweigh the people who are actually buying your product and, and helping you make a living. Exactly. I and mean, it's funny because, you know, people who come up with products to sell, whether it's a you know physical product or a digital product or whatever, it's they intended to sell it and make money from it, right? Most people don't do it just for fun. I mean, especially if they put up a website with a buy now button on it, and and there's something that just you know stops them. It's like I don't want to bother people. I don't want to you know <laughs> I don't want to infringe on their day, you know. And it's like and it's hard to drill into people that that's why people come to look for it because they are people are consumers. They want to either feel better. So they read or do or buy something that makes them do that. Or they, you know, buy the dress because it's going to make them feel sexy or they need it to feel, you know, good at work or something like that. And, and that everyone has a reason and that finding those reasons and being true to what the reason is that you're selling the product, you know, so that you can relate to the people. I think it's kind of one of the hardest things that people that entrepreneurs struggle with really is kind of finding, like be, kind of becoming okay and accepting the reason that they're actually selling the product that they love. Um, I saw almost like people, they, don't, they aren't sure that people are going to share their same uh, feelings about the product. You know, why do you need this? You know, maybe they don't really need it and they can really talk themselves down. I mean, I, I find, you know, that I have to talk to people, talk people up, <laughs> get them off the floor, you know, and say, you know, this is an amazing product. You de- why did you develop this thing? You know, why do you want to sell it? And as you can get them to talk about it more, you know, and, and see, because obviously even with, you know, um, with skateboards, right, you want to, people want to be as badass as everybody else, right? Um, 
and, and right. the product. You think sometimes having the right one, right? If I have this thing and that, I'm going to look like this or act like that, or it's going to make me go better, faster, stronger. Right. And, so, you know, and, and, and again, like, like uh, skateboarding is a, is a great example where uh, really he made the money selling video games, but this is a case where he's probably spent hundreds of hours like trying it out, testing, you know, working right. with them on developing the right game, make sure it was accurate enough. And why can't you charge for the effort and the time you put in? Like why everybody, I noticed, like, like my book, Choose Yourself, uh, it's done very well on Amazon, uh, you know, but I sell for 99 cents, which is probably too little. Like I worked on it for a year or so, and, and I put it out there, and I, I spent a lot of my own money because I self-published. Um, so I, I hired a cover designer, I hired an interior designer, I hired editors, a marketer, uh, you know, and, and on and And um, plus I offered a refund. So, so uh, you know, for anyone, in the first three months of, of after buying it, you know, when it came out, I offered a refund to anyone who, who didn't like it. So, so I was really, I, I was even losing money on those because, you know, when you sell something for 99 cents on Amazon, you only get paid like 35 cents, something like that. Right. And then people were accusing me of like, oh, you, now I get it. He's just trying to make money. Uh, excuse me. You, you're making 35 cents, uh, like basically a, a quarter and a dime by the right. year's worth of my life. And, <laughs> you know, and how, no one's going to get rid Like I've, I've sold a lot of copies of that book. Like it was a, it was a huge book. But a, a quarter and a dime, no matter how many times you multiply it, unless – you like sell it to everybody on Facebook. You're not really going to make that much money. So, uh, you know, plus there's there's taxes and all these other things, and you know, I continue to market it. So, uh, and yet, and yet, you know, you you have to ignore the people who who will try to hold you back. Like they have an mm-hmm. image of you that might not be the correct image, but you can't cater to their image of you. You have to be true to yourself and true to me, even though it was hard for me, like I kind of wanted to give it away for free was my initial instinct. Um, but Amazon doesn't really allow that. So I could, it wasn't an option. That, that's another thing people don't realize. Um, but fortunately, it's not an option because I would have taken it probably. But, uh, you know, it was hard for me to even ask for 99 cents. I had to learn to, that it's okay to do that, to, to, to value my, my time and the hard work you know, for me, at that point, I've been writing articles, say, for 12 years for free for people. And mm-hmm. at some point, there's got to be pent-up demand for what you do for free for all these years. So you just have to ignore the haters in those cases. Right. Yeah, how did, how did you deal with the people who asked for their 99 cents back? <laughs> I paid everybody. That I, 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 it was me and my two daughters. We set, we we had like an, an assembly line at our table and um, we, we would just, you know, one person would write the address and another person would stamp it and another person would lick the envelope and another person would write the check and, you know, just we, we kind of sent hundreds of checks for 99 cents back to people out of my personal account. I cannot even believe that somebody would ask that. After yeah, and, and my my um my 11-year-old daughter at the time, she was like, oh, I'm so tired. And I'm like, you have to keep 
working. Like I have my 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 eleven year old on like this factory assembly line writing yeah. checks. So, but yeah, people would ask for their money back. And no, and they, and they were like, uh, like it was like a normal thing. Um, people still ask for their money back, even though it clearly stays in the book that you know, the book came out in June, and as of the end of September of 2013, uh, no, no more. You know, that was it. It was a three-month window. Uh, but people still write me and say, yeah, I would like my money back now. And, uh, you know, so people didn't even look at it. It's on the very right. – it's before the copyright page. It was like the very first page. So um, – and then the other thing is I also offered to give the money to charity instead of writing them a check because that's a little easier for me. I was able to write one big sure. check to the charity after three months. And right. not that many people wanted to give the 99 cents to charity. So uh, everybody just wanted their 99 cents back. But and by the way, not everybody. It was it was about one percent uh, yeah. asked for their money back. But yeah. but still, for like since I was doing it all manually, you know, at that time it was it was the first three months. So maybe at that point, seventy thousand books had sold, and uh, this is after the first three months. So you know, one percent is like seven hundred checks. And it's a lot. Like That's a Molly, lot. my eleven year old was, was tired. Like I bet. <laughs> I remember when I was eleven doing uh helping my parents with mailers. We used to have to sit there and stamp and and we didn't have to lick, at least they got us like a little thing that we like a little wet sponge thing that we yeah. could use. And uh and after a while, we were like, we can't lick these things anymore. And uh, we used to do thousands of them. It would be like, you know. Yeah, it's hard the work. Beer, the pizza and beer party minus the beer for us because I was 11 and my brothers were probably six and eight. But, um, yeah, we were stuffing envelopes and helping with the family business at the time. It was kind of actually, it was, I kind of, uh, you know, I hated it at the time, but I look back at it now and I actually kind of one of those things I was, asking you about before where you look at things in your life that you hated at the time but then you realize that it might have really helped your work ethic or taught you something that helped you be the person that you are today that you like about yourself um so sometimes i think about those things and you know kind of wonder how they ended up helping me be who i am today (laughs) yeah i don't i don't know i didn't really i had a pretty neutral childhood like Nothing, nothing good or bad happened other than I, I, nobody dated me until after childhood was over. So that was, the, <laughs> that was the only negative thing about my childhood. But nothing great happened either. Like, it was just pretty neutral. Yeah. It's, it's funny, like, you know, how when you look back and you try to think, you know, just, I don't know, like random people you talk to in your life, you know, be like, what happened when you were six or 12 or 23 or, you know, I, I, sometimes we played games before where you have to tell something that happened in your life at a certain age, you know, and sitting at a dinner party or something. And it can make you really think about different things that you don't, haven't thought about for a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's funny you say that because um, I don't know if you know Trina Vas Rao, who he does a podcast. Uh, uh, anyway, he just posted on Facebook, uh, what did you want to be when you grow up? And everyone was posting things like, oh, they wanted to be an astronaut, they wanted to be a writer, they wanted to be a policeman or whatever. And I was really thinking hard, like, what did I really, like, dream about, like, at the age of eight or nine that I wanted to be? And the truth was, and I wrote it down, I wanted to be a member of the Partridge family. 
So <laughs> that's what I wanted to be more than anything. So uh, I put that down. I love that. My kids, my kids are eight. And, I have twins, and they're eight and a half. And um, they ask me all the time because they're constantly discussing what they want to be when they grow up, you know. And they're, they're always like, Mommy, what did you want to be when, when you were growing up? And I honestly don't really think I ever thought about it or I don't remember. You know, I'm sure I did think about it when I was a kid and talked about it, but I really, that's like one of the memories I've completely blocked out. And because I remember my parents used to always, you know, you, oh, I think you'd be a really good doctor, you know, and I just did not want to be a doctor. And so I think I just kind of blocked it out, and I cannot for the life of me, I think I need to be hypnotized or something, cannot remember what I wanted to be when I was a little kid. <laughs> well, well a, co- a, co- a couple of points about that. One is I, whenever I ask my own kids what they want to be, they, they have no clue. But, but the real important point is look at what you and I both do now. It has nothing right. – it, it may have a bare resemblance to something – we wanted to do as kids, like maybe, like I did this, like I would interview my friends sometimes and write it down and, you know, there was no such thing as a podcast or internet or anything like that. Right. So there was no way to really predict your job. And and the other day I saw a job listing, um, I forget which company it was for, but the job listing was interesting. It was for a self-driving car engineer. So somebody who can work as an engineer on mm-hmm. a car that's self-driving. Who would have predicted that when we were kids? Oh, I'm going to be Nobody. a self-driving car engineer. It, it, that's like something out of science fiction. Like it didn't exist. Right. So just like now, like my kids now, they're going to do, and your kids now, it's certainly your kids, they're going to do something that uh, doesn't exist yet. We can't even imagine right. it exists. I know. It'll like they might like be a, 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 virtual, a virtual reality set designer for all we know. Right. Like who knows? Yeah, exactly. I know. I know. And they, it's funny because they, you know, obviously you can't think about what's going to be in the future. I mean, you can think or maybe come up with a few ideas, but you don't know because like when we were kids, we didn't, you know, think about computers and the internet and, you know, podcasts and blogging and, you know, all that stuff. And, or even cell phones, right? Um, I mean, I remember when I got anything. Any, we <laughs> yeah. can't imagine anything. Yeah. I mean, all we can imagine is that things might change. So, so right. books became, you know, even I remember thinking in 1990, I read an article that everybody was going to read newspapers eventually digitally. We'd all get these tablets with all the newspapers on them, and that's how people would read books and newspapers. And I was thinking, man, that's amazing, but I can't even imagine right. how that would happen. And yet. Right. Here, that's that's like trivial now. Like right. most newspapers get all of their page views online, and right. so or, or views. And so, you know, I think the, I think that's why, you know, there's always the saying: there's more questions than answers. And that's why just being curious and reading a lot and being creative, so that when you when you need it, your create you know creativity is a muscle that can atrophy mm-hmm. if you don't use it. So just always exercising that muscle and being healthy and having energy. And these things are really important so that you're ready when the time comes and you see that ad for self-driving car engineer and you're like, yes, that's what exists. Yes. I never thought of it before, but that's exactly what I'm going to do. Or I'm going yeah. to set up a company of uh, hiring um, freelance self-driving car engineers that I'll outsource to these companies looking for these jobs or something. I don't know. I know it's it's amazing. It's amazing to me when you think about how the possibilities are just going to evolve, and it makes me feel so excited about living in this in this time in life. You know, 
and, and that things are evolving so fast. And I know like way back in the olden days, right, <laughs> when things were evolving in the phone and the car and things like that were invented, people, you know, and they were invented at kind of a rapid pace, you know, compared to how it had been prior to that, right? So everybody thought that things were, that the world was moving really quickly and, you know, things were developing and, you know, woo, the world's going to fall apart kind of thing. And now, you know, it's like I think about, God, if my grandmother was alive today, I mean, she just, her mind would just be blown, you know, because she did live through the birth of the internet and just thought it was, it was so huge, she couldn't really understand, you know, and, yeah. and she was in her 90s. And, um, and, you know, she was like, I just don't really understand. Are you sure it's not evil? <laughs> I was like, it's not Hitler, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, but, like, this is what I say, like, you know, a lot of the discussion, obviously, right now is about politics in this country. Right. And, uh, and, Someone was explaining to me the other day how, like, no matter who wins, it's going to destroy the country. And I was thinking to myself, you know, this, this I, I won't say this guy's name. I'll say his name was Dave. I said, uh, uh, Dave, you're always talking about how incompetent the government is, and yet you seem convinced that the government has the power to, to ruin everything. But, mm-hmm. you know... The reality is the government's also incompetent at ruining everything. Like, how is the government going to ruin everything when you have, you know, Google, Amazon, Tesla, uh, Facebook, companies we don't even know about, constantly innovating at such a fast pace that essentially, essentially without, them real, without the world realizing it, world borders are already crumbling. Like, Facebook, right. you know, is... is 1.6 billion people in every in 200 different countries. So, uh, you know, this, you know, national borders are crumbling. Everybody's getting more and more secular because, despite all these cries about Islamophobia, uh, even you go to a country like Iran, most citizens are 95% of the citizens are pretty secular and well educated because that's how you make money. It's people mm-hmm. want to participate in all this innovation that's happening. And we're, we live in a global world that's occasionally there's, there's an interruption uh, from people calling themselves politicians, but they're certainly not slowing down the pace of innovation. Otherwise, no. we wouldn't have self-driving cars in downtown Pittsburgh today. Right. <laughs> right. And like, ads for, like, for like the president or like Congress or the Supreme Court didn't say make self-driving cars in right. Pittsburgh, you know, Larry Page said it. So who's more powerful? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's in a, and why put all that power in the government anyway? Because they, the rest of the world's moving 100 times faster than they are, 100 million times faster. Yeah, so. I'd, much rather, I'd, not, I'd much rather be in, like, I don't know, a self-driving train than, and, and being served by robots than Amtrak, you know, right. where everybody, <laughs> you know, government-run train company that everyone's rude to you all the time and the food's horrible. Exactly. And they crash. <laughs> yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because it's, you know, human error. Um, and, uh, okay. So I want to ask you a question. So are you still living with the 15 things and winging it? Yes. Okay. Can you tell, can you, do you mind talking a little bit about that? Sure. So, so like what, 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 what propelled, I mean, I'm so fascinated by it. And, um, it, I was just like throwing about out like bags of stuff the other day <laughs> after I, after I read that about you, I was like, 
I'm divesting right now. I can't live with 15 things because I'm taking care of two small children, but I'm going to get close. So, yeah, and look, this is not necessarily a lifestyle recommendation because, like, if you have two small kids, you need lots more yeah. things than 15 of things. Um, but uh, just my life circumstances were such that I could do this. But I realized I didn't really – I've been tra- doing a lot of traveling for – various reasons, business and writing and speaking and stuff like that. So I'd been doing this for like almost a couple of years and I realized I didn't, I didn't miss anything. I didn't miss any of my belongings. I only had like one bag uh, with a couple of outfits in it and one bag with like an iPad and a phone and a computer. And I didn't miss anything else. And I had two leases coming up at the same time. I had a place in New York City and a place... Um, about 70 miles north of New York City. And meanwhile, I've been living in Airbnbs all over the world, really, and um, which could sound great, but sometimes it's not so great. But yeah. uh, uh, I decided, okay, you know what? And all of these, both these landlords were asking, are you going to renew the lease? Are you going to renew the lease? It's, we're increasing it. you got to sign all these documents. And I said, you know what? I can't even deal with all this nonsense when I don't even – use these places, and I, don't, and I haven't used any of these belongings. But when you think about the belongings you have, it's not like just, uh, I don't know, your precious items, but really we've all been collecting stuff since childhood and bringing it around with us. We, we moved it out of our childhood bedroom to college, and then we took it to our first apartment, and then later on we went back home when we got and to our parents' house and we got our photo albums and other things. And so we've been collecting all this stuff for me for over 40 years. And so uh, I, I basically called up a friend of mine and I told her, go to both these places and you can, I, I paid her to do this, and I, I said, go to both these places, take a truck, and you can either, with every single item, 100% of the items, you can either keep it, um, sell it, donate it, or throw it out. And... She said, are you sure? And I said, go for it. And so she literally, like, went to both places, took, like, all her cousins and nephews and brothers and sisters, and you don't even realize how much you accumulate. She told me I had, like, you know, 80 bags worth of stuff, and not to mention beds, computers, paintings, dishes, you know, 100 bottles of wine, uh, (laughs) TV, uh, all these, all, all my books. Um, bookshelves and bookcases. Uh, it goes on and on. The list goes on and right. on. And, um, you know, stuff that was probably embarrassing to me as well. Like, I have no idea. Like, she basically went <laughs> into every corner of my life. And uh, she only called me once during the weekend because uh, I told her not to call me at all. And she called me once and said, you sure you want me to start your college diploma? And I said, I haven't even looked at my college diploma since the day I got it. So absolutely throw out my college diploma. And... So I got rid of everything, and then I also got rid of the leases. So I didn't um, get the leases anymore. I, I didn't have any place to stay anymore. And I didn't even really make arrangements to live anywhere. And so suddenly I found myself in a restaurant with my two bags, and this was all the belongings I had in the world, and I had no place to live at all. So I called a friend of mine that I had done a favor for like 10 years earlier, and I told him the situation. And he said, James, what are you talking about? I have two apartments in the city. You stay at one and I'll stay at the other. 
So I stayed at his place for a few weeks, and then I found another Airbnb to stay in and another one. And, and so now I'm, I'm at Airbnbs. In fact, if you want to hear me speak, uh, I, in L.A. in December, on November 17th, I don't know when it is, uh, the Airbnb Open is this big conference for that Airbnb holds. And so I'm speaking as like sort of the, the representative guest uh, of speaking at that conference. <laughs> You'll be like, I am the most, I am currently the most experienced airbnb on the planet. Cause I, I, pro- I probably <laughs> yeah. am, actually. Like, right. I could, yeah. Because my entire lifestyle revolves around living in an Airbnb. Like, I, I cater my lifestyle. So I can leave this place I'm in today and move into another place tomorrow, and it, it would have zero effect on my life. I could, I could completely move homes uh, in, in an hour if I want, and right. it would have no effect on my life. Right, and it could be in another country too. It could be another country. It has been another country. I've done it. Like, at one point, a few weeks after I did threw out everything, I had to go visit California for a week, and I literally took all my belongings and I moved to California for a week. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what's kind of cool now is if you don't really like the cold, you don't have to stay in New York during the winter. You can go to California or Arizona or Florida or somewhere green. Well, that's my plan. So yeah. that sounds you kind of you kind of have to be not so smart to live in New York unless you like really need to be here. Yeah. So New York has a lot. Yeah. Of, New York has great things about it, but it has a lot of bad things about it too. Yeah, my kids are dying to go there. I'm gonna take them next year at some point. I it's haven't a nice been. Place I, to visit. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I used to spend a lot of time there when I had my handbag company because I did five trade shows a year, and mm. so I was there a lot. But it was always on business, and I was born there, and I have family there, and so it was. Uh, I didn't grow up there; I grew up in California. But um, but it, you know, my parents were both diehard New Yorkers until they were thirty-five and forty-five. Um, and uh, where where did they grow up? There. Uh, in Manhattan. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where I was born. We were all born there. And when I was six, we moved to Berkeley, California. Oh, great. That's where uh, I grew up. Yeah. I was born in Manhattan, but then when I was little, we moved to New Jersey, so not as great as California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, California was a pretty fun place to grow up, I have to say. Um, so, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me today. This was really fun. I had a great time. Well, Thank you again for asking me to go on your show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, we'll definitely be in touch soon. Excellent. Um, And uh, uh, let me know when it comes out, and I'll spread the word. You got it. I certainly will. Have a really great weekend. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Bye, James. Thanks for tuning in to A Street Smart MBA with Sarah Shaw. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes to get the latest episodes anytime, anywhere. And we'll see you on the next one.